You are now listening to The Forefront Radio, where we discuss history, the Bible, the history of the Israelites, science, and other matters. Bring it out. The history of the blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans as it relates to the Bible. Who were you prior to slavery? Who were you prior to colonization? These answers and more can be seen and heard as you listen to The Forefront Radio. Purely a part of my village at this point. <laughs> like it or not, he's in my village. Right? And we all have, you know, we have roles in, in other people's villages. I am parent in some people's village. I am, you know, a confidant in other villages. You know, I am mentor. Uh, and, and I really do feel like, you know, this relationship that I have is one that has really enriched my life. So thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I'm going to throw out some, some house rules as I normally do. Um, we typically invite folks to the stage um, to have this conversation. And of course, I do not want to uh, be the barrier between those who have followed your work, Dr. Joy, and with um benefited greatly from what you're con- what you've contributed to the world and so we'll we'll open up the stage in just a bit uh for sure uh so i will turn off hand raising for now and once we get to that point where we are ready to bring people up we will bring people up <clears throat> um with that stated um i want to jump right in and, and dr joy you know like like i said this is <laughs> when we whenever we start talking <laughs> Wherever it goes, it goes. But I, I wanted to throw a couple of things out there just to get us started. And really, um, for those who who may not be as intimately familiar with your work, I'd love for you to just ground people in the concept of what post-traumatic slave syndrome is and how that came to be. I'm sure. You know, one of the things that that happened for me as, you know, as I was, I grew up in Los Angeles. I can't believe I'm back in Los Angeles. It's kind of crazy. I'm in Los Angeles right now uh, to do a symposium, uh, Be the Healing Symposium at my high school. I mean, really, where they told me I wasn't college material. Just saying. Anyway, so um, I think I came about this whole idea um, a lot in a lot of different ways. One is my lived experience. I started to notice uh, very early in my life, there was something that didn't feel comfortable to me about how we, when I say we, I'm talking about black folks, there were things and behaviors that I saw that I didn't understand. Like, you know, when folks would say things like, oh, God, she was a pretty girl. These are black folks. She's a pretty girl, even though she's dark. Or, you know, yeah, you know, you know, he was fine. Boy, that was fine. He was fine. He was light skinned. New words. Light skinned and had good, good hair. Right. And these were things that I grew up with. You know, I grew up hearing those kind of statements from people that look like me. And it, it and, and again, it, it felt it felt wrong. Right. And in my family, it was considered wrong. You know, and, and I, I was trying to understand, I think, very early on why that was happening and why when my friends got mad at me and, you know, we had a fight. You know, that, and, and, and God bless us, we didn't have, you know, it go viral. We didn't have that problem. You just had to fight and it was done, you know, but you had a fight. But before they you, they fight you, they would call you out your name. And the first thing they would call you is black. 
you black fill in the blank you black and again what we what we're you know, the intention is here is that somehow by calling you black it will add to your injury and so for me again i'm going why are you you beat me up with my blackness you know what i mean black becomes the assault that you you harm me or seek to harm me with and those were the kinds of things that early on, again, just as a as a child and a youth growing up, you know, in and around South Central, you know, it was it was part of the survival, you know, making it through the day with without getting jumped or whatever was going on. But it added to that was this sense of this kind of uh, an injury that I couldn't name. I couldn't name it. I, I knew it didn't make sense. And even when people did it, you could see in their faces that it harmed them. Mm. It, it was it was such an amazing, amazing thing when I look back on it and I and I now have, you know, a, a different set of eyes. I saw that it was pain all over the place. And so as mm. I move move forward, you know, I started to look at um, and I had read in a number of places this whole idea of the injury, you know, uh, slow healing wounds in certain places. And then I, I said, you know, I'm going to take it upon myself to find out what those wounds are. Because you see, no one, nowhere, I have four degrees, as you've heard. None of those degrees taught me about me. None of them. <laughs> okay. It was, as I was seeking to understand, it did not come from the folks that were trying to tell me who and how to be. And so I'm trying to find out things about what it, what the lived experience is of people that look like me and why and how. Mm-hmm. And so inevitably I started reading, um, you know, I, I started interviewing folks, elders. I started uh, reading slave narratives. I had to go all the way back as far as I could to try to hear them tell their stories based on their own narratives I wanted to understand that and I learned some things. So post-traumatic was, was born from something that's, first of all, it's not new. It, everybody thought my book was, God, it's provocative. It, it's not provocative. We've looked at multi-generational trauma with other groups. We've looked at um, indigenous, our indigenous brothers and sisters and the impact of, of colonialism, you know, the, uh, the unhealed wounds, you know, the grief that still occurs. Uh, putting them right square at the top of the suicide rate in this country. They've held that position for at least last 30 years that I've known. So I, so we've looked at folks, we've looked at Aboriginal folks in Australia. And, you know, I often, you know, when I'm, when I'm speaking and, and it, and, and, and I know that it probably maybe throws some people off. I said, why is it when people heard post-traumatic slave syndrome, you know, they got all in their feelings. Well, what, how, you know, first of all, I wasn't there and you people enslaved each other. And I mean, you get all this pushback, you know, and you get over it. Not you get, people. Oh, oh yes, you people, oh, you know, you know, get over it. Y'all need to get over it. I said, now, it's interesting that, you know, when I say slavery, folks get all twisted, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't get twisted when I say Holocaust. Mm. Help, help, help me understand that. Mm. Right. And so, again, there are folks that this is not new. It's just new that I decided to not ask anybody's permission to look at me. It's new that I didn't, you know, uh, somehow seek some support around wanting to understand 
greater my people, people that look like me. But it was interesting that the very first response to it was, oh, my God, this is so out of the ordinary. No, it's not. It's only out of the ordinary because, you know, uh, we don't look at black folks. We don't get to do that deep dive as if, you know, 300 plus years of enslavement didn't produce injury. You know, but it, it was so it was under that kind of looking at behaviors, attitudes, things that we would do and say. And and then taking and superimposing a history that few of us, and I say few of us, Black folks, fully understand. And so I think, and I think that's intentional, by the way. I think the institutions, it's, 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 it's counterintuitive for them to share the legacy of what has occurred as it relates to American chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. So again, it was, bo- it was born from, one, my lived experience from very young. And from my engagement and understanding and deep dive into the history of, of blackness and anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's kind of how it started. And again, I looked at symptomology. I looked at uh, so, of course, as a clinic from a clinical vantage point, let me just say that post-traumatic slave syndrome is not a clinical diagnosis. Let me be very clear about that. It is not a clinical diagnosis, Le- a clinical diagnosis like post-traumatic stress disorder. Let, let me let me let me pause you real quick on that because I know that you've talked about that before and and I feel like I know why <laughs> <laughs> right but but how I mean how have you navigated the fact that all of the the symptoms are there but yet they won't give it the designation what, what what's that about first of all it's uh, let me be be very very clear I don't want them to give it the designation okay let me, let, okay. Let me explain because what that does it suggests now again let's just look at something we probably all know post-traumatic stress disorder it presents itself with certain symptoms right um, exaggerated startle response um, uh, difficulty falling or staying asleep mood disorders all kind of stuff again, there's a whole list of them you can look at them you don't need you don't need to have all of them just have a few of them to get the diagnosis mm-hmm. and then what they do is they start looking at you know how they can help you is, is it showing uh, depressive signs they give you antidepressants they may you know give you some um, some uh, talk therapy where you go and talk to somebody twice a week who speaks to you softly with the intent stay with me of moving you beyond this uh, point in your life, to the point where you're more functional, you're you're feeling like you're healing, you're able to 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 actually enjoy your life on a certain level. Certain things, you know, mental health uh, uh, community is trying to do. Post traumatic slave syndrome isn't in there because you have to understand that in order for healing to occur, there has to be social justice. And when you when you pathologize it, you say, okay, so this is a pathology. Now let me just tell you the other thing that happens. Oh, it's a pathology that they can be treated for. Okay, well, let me go on and get it, you know, put in the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual Mental Disorders. Let me, let me just, and let me have them pay me to heal them from this thing called post-traumatic slave syndrome. Are you following what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, absolutely not. And it, and, it, and it can't be fixed that way because that means that you can just give me some medication, sit me in a room, talk to me softly, you know, a couple of times a week and everything's going to be fine. No, it's not. Right. You see, because part of the injury has been that historical trauma, economic trauma, all of those things that bring us to 2022. 
And, you know, the the reason why the man had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. You see, all of those things can't get addressed in a room. And so it does not ever suggest that. And it also suggests that, you know, somehow black people are all sick. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about injury here. And that injury was sustained on a number of levels, mentally, emotionally, physically, economically, socially, medically. You, you, you just, the list goes on and on. Read the book. But the point is that it was never, ever intended to be that. And there are people that have tried. Now, racism, you know, they've also <laughs> we tried to put in the DSM, you know, all of these different things. But you got to also remember that part of what, what Europeans did was they rationalized their uh, their uh, horrors they they rationalized it they monetized it and and then they uh, exported and imported it right that's what they do and so what would happen if we could first of all the problem then becomes the people and not the systems and not the structures that produce the injury. So that's for all of those reasons it doesn't belong in the DSM. It is not a uh, a diagnosis in that way. Got it. Okay. So, we're only twenty minutes in. I love it. Um, I have so I have so much to say there. Uh, so there's there's a saying that you've that you've used, and I swear it's probably one of the strongest statements on its own. I'm just going to say it real quick, Sister Joy. It's the secrets that make us sick. And it's one of these things that keeps resonating in my head every time I'm engaged with an executive who is for or supportive of DEI, right? But the secrets are what make us sick. And if, if we're truly engaged in this change work, right, and you've done a lot of work in terms of the pathology of the illness, there's still an unwillingness, I think, to dig into that, that root cause in a corporate setting. But the secrets make us sick. I, I want you to address that. What? Talk sure, about sure. I think, um, first of all, just when I was uh, doing clinical practice and, you know, was working with individuals and families, you know, um, inevitably, you know, I had a very interesting case. And, and, and of course, I worked in the hood, set up an office in the hood. They didn't have anybody uh, <laughs> to su- supervise, you know, the the black MSW students. So mm-hmm. I literally... I literally <laughs> put myself in the middle of the community say I will supervise them because we need them right mm-hmm. so I'm in a community and I'm I'm, I'm kind of you know supervising the the cases that they're they're dealing with and um had a few of my own I had had to be in practice myself in order to be supervising them and so I'm you know I have an individual that comes in it's a family a black family um uh very you know wealthy uh wealthy family. The presenting problem was a young girl. And the young girl was 14. She was acting out, you know, not going to school, you know, just doing, just, you know, really acting out. And so the father is, is, is bringing this to me before I meet anyone in the family. He says, look, I, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to take, you know, um, this on, you know, my, my daughter is, you know, she's kind of acting out, creating problems. 
And I said, yeah, I said, but I generally speaking, you know, I, I don't just deal with the, the child. I, you know, I deal with, with the family, you know, because the child, you know, had, there's a root cause somewhere and it's not just the child alone. Um, well, I don't think that'll be necessary. He says, I, you know, we're, we're fine. It's just that she's acting out. I said, okay, well, I will start, you know, working with her. And as I started to talk and work with this young girl, it became very clear that she didn't know her father at all. She didn't know, you know, as I began to talk to her, she said, you know, I said, well, tell me a little bit about, you know, your relationship with your dad. She goes, I don't really know my dad. I said, what do you mean? She goes, for example, I've never met anyone in his family. <laughs> I said, well, that's, yeah, oh, wow. that would, that's, that's pretty deep. Yeah. He refused, refuses to engage his family, um, move them from, you know, being rich to being wealthy, you know, doing all all the bells and whistles. The girl had her own car, her own room, her own everything. Um, but she was miserable. And I'm going, so you don't tell me about your mom. She goes, well, I'm really close. You know, I'm close with my mom, but, you know, she travels. So mom travels for a living. Um, and I'm going, okay, well, who else? And this is, well, my grandmother, you know, my grandmother lives here and all in the house, but they're all like in separate spaces. I'm going, oh, okay. So I end up, I said, you know, I'm, I'd like to, to, to actually meet with everyone that I can that would be willing to meet with me. So I meet with the mother, right? And the mother is very, um, really a wonderful person, well-educated, you know, but has decided to take on this job that allows her to travel. And she says, I never, we never wanted to move. We never needed a bigger house. We never needed, you know, an exclusive neighborhood. This is what the mother is saying to me, right? So now, you know, I got to talk to dad. <laughs> so I call him. I said, look, I said, you know, I, I think, you know, I've talked to your, your daughter and I've talked to your wife and really, you know, all roads lead to you. And I said, I'd like you to come in. And he was, he was beside himself because it was like, you know, I don't have a lot of time. I said, okay, well, you know, I won't take, I promise I won't take up too much of your time. He comes to the office and he starts to tell me, uh, about, you know, the problems his daughter's having and all the things he's done for her. And it's, you know, she's just spoiled. And I'm listening to him. I said, tell me a little bit about you. He goes, oh, this is not about me. I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm really trying to get a, a sense of who you are because your daughter didn't seem to know a lot about you. Mm. Well, well, my, you know, she, you know, there's no need to know about, you know, my family, you know, my family is, you know, that that's, that's just, you know, they, they were dysfunctional and I, I don't deal with them. I said, oh, okay. So what make them, made them dysfunctional? Well, you know, that, that's, that's not, not something I, you know, really feel like I need to talk about. I said, okay, well, let's talk about your wife and let's talk about, you know, your relationship with her, the, the three of you, you, your wife and your daughter. Well, you know, she, 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 you know, she travels a lot. And, you know, I, I think she, you know, she, she drinks a little too much. Oh, really? So, so how, how does that look? How did, when did you notice that? Well, you know, she'll, she'll come home and she'll, you know, she'll have a glass of wine. Oh, so you and her, she goes, no, no, you know, by herself in, in her room. And she says, so I think she, she drinks just, just a little too much. I said, just a little too much. I said, perhaps I said, maybe, you know, when you say a little too much, <laughs> I, I need you to, unpack what that means because you know I know a little too much might mean a whole lot more than that and he just went off he goes yeah I know what it is I know what it's like to pick up my father drunk in the street I know what it he went I stopped talking completely and for the next 
15 minutes, he went on and he turned around and he looked at me because you see, that was the secret. And so when I I looked at him, tears, now tears are streaming down his face. And he Mm. said, he says, I guess, I guess there was a reason there was a need for me to be here today. I said, yeah, (laughs) I think so. Right. Long story short, he he took his kids, sold a great, big, fabulous house and went back to where they were happy. (laughs) But but the point was, you know, and and a good and a good (laughs) therapist, actually a good friend. You know, if you've mm-hmm. ever, ever had a friend come to you and you know that there's mm-hmm. something, they, they yeah. give you, they give you the presenting problem, but then you yeah. know that you notice something else, right? There's you, something underneath you, that. You yeah. know that. And, and that's essentially what I mean. And when we start talking about the secrets and, you know, I could, I could start a phrase right now and everybody black on would know exactly how to answer it. You never air your dirty laundry, dirty laundry. Uh-uh. Right. I- uh, and, and there's certain certain secrets, uh, even members of the family that keep the secrets. And sometimes those members are children. But it is the secrets. And that's just through practice that I know it's the secrets that make us sick. And if we expand that on a broader level, we start looking at generational, intergenerational trauma. Then, you know, it's those secrets we have to release so that we can we can be well. <laughs> No, this is this is powerful and and it's interesting. So the intergenerational trauma and these are things that we've talked about in uh, plantation theory uh, for sure about relating it to our relationship to work, right? To the to the concept of work mm, and, and, yes, and rooting yes. right rooting our epigenetic responses and coded behaviors based on why we were brought here as enslaved people, right? Um, which was to work, work harder than anyone has ever worked uh, for the benefit in the economy uh, that was constructed around it and how that plays out even still today, right? And and we have conversations a lot about, you know, this working twice as hard and uh, for half the recognition or, or half the pay in some cases. Um, and so thinking about that, right, we, we, we talk a lot about connecting the dots between history and modern day lived experience for black folks. And one of the things that we talk about is the traumas associated to working in corporate spaces. Um, and you have an, an intimate understanding of how the black relationship to work is rooted in trauma. Um, there's a concept that you brought up, uh, not that you created, but you, you, you certainly brought up in, in one of your talks about appropriate adaptation when living in a hostile environment. And I'd love to get, you know, for those who are listening, who are Black professionals and, you know, whether they're in HR, whether they're in academia or just professionals in, in, in corporate America and academia, um, what are some of the ways that appropriate adaptation sort of manifests itself? Uh, let me, in my book, I talk about it and I've, I've yeah. written a, a couple of journal articles and book chapters that speak to this, but I'm going to give some that probably people are, have seen, experienced, um, and just, you know, didn't question it. It becomes, what I, I, I propose is that we can ill afford to swallow whole what we call cultural, right? <laughs> they go, we, we can ill afford yeah. to swallow it whole because there's poison in the cookies, and what I mean, what I mean by that is that what we call cultural, like people say, that's just how they are. 
you know, people said, well, that's just how they are. That's their culture. Right. Is it, it, so how do you tease the poison from the cookies? Because, see, that's my job. My job was to sit there and go, no, 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 that's not cultural. That's adaptive. That's survival. And survival hasn't always been pretty, right? We survive in the best way that we can, given our circumstances. And so I give people examples of contemporary behavior that, um, that we see on a regular basis. For example, <laughs> this is interesting because I took this all the way back. When I went back to Ghana, I'm getting ready to go to Ghana again. But when I went, went to Ghana, um, I, was, I was really very deliberate and intentional because this is, you know, after I've written a book. Uh, and there's a some there's this experience that I had, and I used to have, and probably a lot of you did. Um, you know, when I was in in any kind of building, office building, business space with my mother or my father, and I was young, like I was like you know five five years old, six. I was right next to my parents. Mm-hmm. There was no floating around. <laughs> you know, there was you were right there. And I, I remember going into a bank and this is, you know, I'm an adult now, you know, raising my own children. And again, I understand um, the importance of human development. I taught it for, you know, 20 years. So, you know, human developer, development in the social environment, recognizing, de- you know, developmental stages from birth to, to death. So I am in a bank, right? I'm in a bank and I'm watching this behavior. And I will often ask, especially when I work with in the, in the community and I work with parents, I say, if you were in the bank and you were a child between anywhere from four to six and your mother or father, or whoever the guardian was for you, you were there with them. Where were you in proximity of that adult? And they would say, oh, I'm right there in the grocery store holding on. Sometimes they holding on to the leg. Everybody moves all at once. Right. And if the child should move, I don't know what the snap, the little finger would snap, get you. Get yourself over here. Get get over here, right? The moment the child will stray. Now we in a bank. You got the little four, you know, four to six year olds, and every every black child is glued to their parent. Meanwhile, little Cindy and Timmy, little little white Cindy and Timmy, they rolling around. They rolling on the ropes, rocking up on you, saying, "That's a nice sweater. What's your name?" Right? They just rolling in the same bank that the the black children can't move. Now, what happens is, now I want, I'm going I'm to give you some, some history there, and I don't have to give you much to help you understand why that parent is saying don't move. But I want to, you to see how deeply entrenched it is in our socialization, in our adaptation. Mm. So it is a part of human development. Part of human development is for a child to reach a point where they have a certain level of secure attachment, so much so that they are able to explore independently within their environment. In other words, they feel a certain level of autonomy that comes with this security. So what happens is the natural task of development is in all of us. I want to go look at that over there. I want to go touch that. I want to go look closer at this. That's part of the human experience. I don't care who you are. So what happens to the child? Stay with me. I under, now we're going to get to the parent. Why the parents say you can't move. Mm. So the child then gets, let's say that there's a, there's a little, now you get to the counter, right? You get to the counter, you're, you're getting ready to talk to the teller. Now, the counter is actually, the children are like lower than the counter. And the parent can't see them because they're, they're facing the counter. So the kids are trying to escape. 
which is a normal thing to do. So the child is under there. They go, mama can't see me. Daddy can't see me. I'm there. I'm out. I'm out. out." But but, but in in the back of the line, in the back of the line, where the mama, the same line, there's another black person, male or female, don't know the mother, don't know the children, but knows the death stare. <laughs> so that black parent mm. steps out, looks at the children getting ready to escape, and the little kids go, oh, man. Right? <laughs> and they, they roll back. So now you have a larger social control because you see that person, that black person has the other black person's back. I'm watching out for your children because you aren't seeing this. But the question becomes, why can't they move? But everyone has bought into this idea. Now, understanding that there's something that happens to children. You know, we have these developmental stages. So now you have this four to six year old children that are clinging to their parents, unable to move. And you have white children rolling down the aisles, you know, and what the black child is non-verbally being being taught here is it's their world. It's not mine. I'll get in trouble. And then the white children are looking and going, huh, they can't move. Something must be wrong with them. And so what we have to recognize is what gets internalized. Because you see, it's normal to want to do exactly what the white children are doing. But this child is now feeling anger, shame, and guilt. And they're Mm. only four years old. And Mm. so what happens with that is you you need look no further than Emmett Till to understand, right? Because it could cost, it has cost our children their lives. If they bump, look at the the young kid that his backpack touched him. He is nine years old and she accused him of sexually trying to do something to her. And they showed it on the camera that his backpack hit her. So we have been conditioned and socialized that we don't get the same rights everyone else does. We have to protect. And so what did I do when I raised my children? I said, I need to be, I need you to be where I can see you. And they would go with me. My grandkids would go with me in the bank or wherever I was and go, hey, Ema, they would wave, right? Because they're being children. Now, just to kind of show you how deeply ingrained that is. So let's, you know, on one occasion, I'm going to a loan officer. I'm speaking to a loan officer and I have my grandson with me. And he's about, he's got about three and a half, four years old. And he's with me this day. And he's sitting, he's just sitting, you know, sitting on my lap, right? And he's just very quiet. And uh, another thing that you will hear happens this is an elder black woman that I'm talking to. So I want you to remember that scene. I am sitting, my grandson is quietly sitting on my lap, right? Yep. Now, let me give you another, one more, then, I, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll pull it all together for you. I just tend to do it this way, I'm sorry. I'm here for it. So, yeah, we're good. So one of the well-known things that, uh, I don't know if you all know Adelaide Sanford, she was the vice chancellor of education in New York. Um, state and she's she's amazing. Adelaide's still alive. She she was old when I met her. <laughs> okay, so I don't you know she just go <laughs> outlive us all. I you know she got to be in her nineties now. Okay. Anyway, so uh, Adelaide, um, I'm on a radio show talking about post traumatic. Exact same thing we're doing right here. I'm talking about post traumatic, and some you know one of the p- questions is what does it look like? And I give them this example. I said you know there's a black mother. And this is the one everybody knows. A black mother and a white mother. 
And a black mother and a white mother, this is contemporary, say 2022, black mother and a white mother both have sons, or it could be daughters, it's not, it's not um, gender specific, but you know, they, they, have, they both have sons, and the sons know each other. As a matter of fact, they go to school. Maybe they're at a, you know, a school meeting, and they're sitting next to each other with their sons on either side of them. The black mother, who knows the white mother, knows her son, leans over and says, you know, I just wanted to mention to you, I noticed your son is really doing, you know, doing really well. And the white mother perks up and goes, thank you so much. He really is, you know. He's in the Talented and Gifted program. That's called TAG. And he also, you know, won the science fair last week. You know, his uncle's an astronaut. She's just going on and buzzing, bubbling with enthusiasm about her son. And so she sits back feeling, you know, warm and fuzzy. And as she sits back, she realizes that the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. So she leans back forward and she says to the black mother, well, wait a minute, you're talking about my son. Your son's the one that's really coming along. Black mother goes, girl, get out of here. You should have seen that boy yesterday. Lord have mercy. He works my nerves. Oh, he's a mess. Ooh, he's a handful. You think so, but yeah, right? So the white response to that, white people in general, they're like, no wonder they're just so negative. So I'm gonna bring us all the way back home. I'm gonna bring us to the secret. So there is a secret that happens. And the secret here that all black people know at a certain point is that even though that black mother is going, girl, get out of here, that boy's a handful. She's proud, as proud or even more proud than that white mother. Even though she's saying things that are denigrating. Stay with me. There's a secret that even though she's saying that, she's proud. Now, Let's find the etiology. Let's look at the root cause analysis of this. I told you, I started off by telling you I read a lot of slave narratives, thousands of them, actually. Right, right. And, and when I read these slave narratives, there was something that showed up. So I'm on this radio show, and I'm telling this exact same story, and Adelaide calls in, right? She calls in because she's going to be one of the people that's going to be uh, talking to me, right? And I'm like, I was okay. intim- intimidated. But I want you to look at that story so we can have context. And I want you to roll it back now, 300 years. It's a black mother and there's a white mother. The white mother is a slave owner and or there may be a male slave owner as well. And it's not uncommon that, you know, this this enslaved mother has children and they too are enslaved. And let's say she's working in the big house, or she's working in the field, doesn't matter. Very often, the children would play nearby, black and white children, black, white children playing together. And on this particular occasion, she's working in the fields and her son is there and a white slave owner comes through and says, that's your boy over there. That's your boy? That boy's sure coming along. He is sure coming along. Mm-hmm. And what is that mother gonna say? She's gonna say, oh no, 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 sir. He's, he, 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 he's stupid. He's shiftless. He can't work. And if it's my daughter, I'm going to tell you, she's, she, she, can't, she can't do nothing. She's lazy, you know. She's dirty because I don't want you to breed her. And if it's my son, I don't want you to sell him away. So I denigrate them to protect them. That is appropriate adaptation when you live in a hostile environment. Mm. It, was, it was agency then. But not, not now. So now let's roll it back to 2022. You got Trey sitting next to his mother. You got Timmy sitting next to his. And Trey looks at his mother and he thinks, how come you can't be proud of me? How come you can't be proud of me like she's proud of her son? Because he doesn't know the secret yet. 
Uh-huh. And by the time Trey learns the secret, he's been injured by it. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Oops. Make you sick. It, look, <laughs> so no matter how much I hear that, it never ceases to, to just knock you over the head. And, and I remember we were talking one day and I remember you telling me about the social hierarchy. And I remember you t- the, the racial hierarchy and, and how, and you, <laughs> you made me take out a piece of paper and draw this up. You remember this? You said, there's, there's white man, white woman, black man, black woman. Remember this, right? And you you yep. you, proceed, you proceeded to tell me how the flow of racism and sexism goes down the hierarchy, but where does it land? Where does it end up? All right, take them through it. So 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 first of all, yeah, and and, and I, I can't claim the actual chart itself. I actually added to the chart once I saw it. Um, and the brothers that did this were, um, what is the name of it? Uh, there, this is a group of black men. It'll come to me. This is old brain. A uh, group of black men that really have created an organization that's been going on uh, to uh, for men to raise up and 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 to work with women against violence against women. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a really powerful group, and that's where the actual chart came from. But by the way, I just wanted to tell you to end that story with Adelaide. Yeah. Adelaide. Adelaide called in to tell me that she sat at her grandmother's feet, who had been enslaved. As a young girl, she said, and she told her what I had just said. So she said that we would denigrate the children. We would tell them, we would say all these things so they wouldn't take them, so they wouldn't abuse them. So she actually uh, literally had lived experience of of, uh, her grandmother who had been enslaved that actually uh, confirmed that. Even though I'd read it in slave narrative, she actually (laughs) confirmed it. And that's why she wanted to call in, because she remembered. So... When we look at this hierarchy, and y'all, if you got paper, take it out. (laughs) Give him a second. Give him a second. I highly encourage you to do this, especially. I'm a a visual person, so I tend, I tend, I tend to see things, uh, learn a lot, you know, visually. I, I have to conceptualize things. Just enjoy before before you go on. I want to make sure everybody gets a second. Get a pen and paper because this will help you understand what you're experiencing in corporate spaces. And the only thing I'm going to say in, in preface is who who are the first group of people when we hear diversity actually gets the benefit of it, right? I'm plant that. All right, Dr. Sister Joy, go ahead. All right. So if you have a sheet of paper at the top of the sheet, sheet of paper, I want you to put a box, just create a little rectangular box. And in there, you're going to put white men. This is going to look like a diamond after a after a while. So you want an arrow leading from the white men to another box. Think of it like, you know, you're, you're actually making a, a diamond and there's another box. And in that box is white women. And between white men and white women, you want to write the word sexism because white women feel sexism from white men. OK, Now, on the other side of the white men box is another arrow creating the other side of the diamond. And there is a box. And in that box are men of color. Okay. And the box leading. Now we're going to go from the box leading from the black 
and men of color and black men, you're going to lead down. This is going to be another box at the bottom, right beneath, you know, beneath the white man, all the way at the bottom are women of color. Okay. So between women of color and men of color, women of color often feel sexism or oppression from men of color. And from white women, let's go back to the white women box, white women uh, towards women of color, you will find between them both, you know, this sense of racism and, you know, basically Karen is who you got here. So you have racism from the white woman drawing from the white man down to the box of the women of color. You feel racism. You have racism and sexism. So women of color are at the bottom. When you start looking at the disparities, that breaks down to the one group within women of color with the greatest disparity, the greatest harm, the greatest stress are black women. So there's an arrow leading from that box down one to another box, which is black women. And then black women have the responsibility box under them. To nurture, raise, train children. And that is the cycle. That is the cycle. And what happens is that black women become the oppressed of the oppressed. Carrying all of the burden. And when you start looking at health disparities, it bears out. Yeah, look, so I, I was I was going to venture into health disparities because I know you 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 know blew the lid off. Uh you know, and, and, and look, the the work around medical apartheid, which which you brought to my uh to my radar uh through your lectures, um is devastating to read, right? But it's it's not out of the uh, out of the realm of possible when you think about how much agreement had to be had to be there in, within this construct in order for it to make it work. Right? Exactly. And, and it's important to know, and this is why, um, you know, it, the, it doesn't matter anyone who's on whatever your discipline is, whatever lane you're in, in your, in your life or in your work, in your profession. If you are in America you have to know that every major institution in America has at its root white supremacy. That's not my opinion. That's the truth. I don't care if you're an architect. I don't care if you're a teacher, a doctor, an attorney. It doesn't matter what you choose. At the bottom of that, it is being held up by white supremacy, which is why, you know, again, you know, everybody, people started clutching the pearls when, you know, the, the, the capital uprising happened. You know, like, oh my God, this is not America. <laughs> All of, this, I go, yes, it is. This is when, very much America. <laughs> when hasn't it been America? And again, you know, because uh, again, they're not paying attention to what we've been saying and what we've been experiencing. And That's see, right. I think the, we do ourselves a disservice when we begin to believe. I, I tell you, I ran into some some thirty somethings that had you know Harvard MBAs that. You know, uh, were, were telling me that, oh, no, I've, I've you know, they have really good friends and uh, they, they don't really need to kind of create this because what we were doing is trying to mentor them. We're looking at uh, older black professionals trying to mentor young black professionals. But they were saying, well, no, I got an MBA from Harvard 
And, you know, Karen is my my really good friend and she's got a really corporate job, a good corporate job. So um, I don't really need to do all of this kind of networking that you're talking about. And I said, I said, oh, OK, uh, t- let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> right. And not it's almost a year to the day. Uh, they were they were saying, uh, Dr. Joy, can we can we talk to you? Can we talk? They said, sure, <laughs> I, I can talk to you. I said, they said, well, you know, uh, that job didn't come through. <laughs> you know, Karen didn't Karen didn't uh, send my resume on. Right. And uh, I didn't get in. And now I got a mortgage because, you know, I was leveraging everything on my, these, you know, these networkings with these with Karen and everybody else. And uh, it didn't come through. I said, oh, so let me just tell you what happened. You found out you were black in America. Ooh. That's what just happened. You found out you were black in America. And I tried to tell you you were black in America. Uh, but you didn't, you know, you you just felt like, you know, your MBA from Harvard was going to somehow erase all that, mm. you know. But again, that we and that that's sort of that. Let me tell you, we got some work to do with, with some of that crew. But the, the, the point is, is that yeah. that those structures that we and that's why I say to people, if you see the man, stay with me. I want you all to hear me when I say this. You see the man with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. And you remember Chief Justice Taney who said that a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. He said it then, no rights. And that's what you saw. Now here's, let's just stretch a little further. Do you think that that man who felt like black people had no rights that white people are bound to respect, you don't think they wear doctors you know, jackets and uh, judges robes and oh, or teachers in preschool and kindergarten and high school. You think they don't, they're not the ones that you've contracted with to build your house or the, stay with me. Because you see, that is the, the thing we, we begin. And I'm not asking people, let me just say, I don't want you to be paranoid and freak out. I, I trust people to the extent of what you show me. I'm going to give you a chance. <laughs> I'm going to give you a chance, mm. but I have a whole lot of reason to be reticent at throwing my arms open. I mean, history is the best. Okay. Define and I'm saying, just, just pay attention because, you know, we're being harmed. Our children are being harmed because we're naive. We, we somehow believe you saw all those people at the Capitol. You don't think that they're, uh, uh, they're they weren't teachers and dentists bank and very, you don't think <laughs> bank tellers and, you know, the per- person that, you know, you're going to get your medicine from or, you know, you don't know what I'm saying. For sure. So. So, again, I, I think we can, you know, uh, trust in God, but tie your camel. Ooh, bars. Look, <laughs> dropping jewels up here. Um, so look, I, we're, we're at we're about eight minutes out from the top of the hour. I, I know that there are people dying to come and talk to you. So uh, let me just do a quick refresh of the room for those who are joining us uh, for the first time in Plantation Theory. Welcome. We have the honor and the pleasure this evening of uh, hearing from one of uh, our, our, our great luminaries, um, national treasures, international treasures, Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And, um, you know, we're, we're digging in deep, right? So, of course, we, we hope that you have the book. If not, please, I pin the link uh, to her website uh, at the top of the room. 
Uh, if you are not a member of the club thus far, please go ahead and click on the greenhouse to ensure that you uh, know what we have coming up. Um, and we're, we're digging in deep this evening. So what I want to do at this point, Dr. Joy, because um, I want to I, I want to give the opportunity for people not only to to, to give you your flowers, but also to to, to probe your, your your deep intellect and wisdom uh, in this in this work that you've done to really uncover and unveil, peel back the layers of the onion, as it were, uh, to the uh, white insecurity that's at the underpinnings of this, uh, uh, you know, of this construct. Uh, you, you said white supremacy. I often suggest in, in, in plantation theory, we call it white insecurity, which you know, you and I have discussed uh, and I've, I've shared with you this formula of insecurity plus fragility equals rage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And so as so white, white insecurity, uh, supremacy is the lie that's being upheld, but insecurity is the underpinning root cause of this of, of said lie. With that stated, um, I'm going to open up if you're ready. I'm going to open up. Absolutely. All right. Here we go. So, uh, hand raising is now turned on. Anybody who would like to come to stage, feel free to. <laughs> that was that was a dumb question because there's a lot of people who would like to come to stage. Uh, I will bring everybody up. Certainly, um, go ahead and go popcorn style until it does no no longer serves us. But um, Mo, you were you were first up. Uh, the floor is yours, my brother. Thank you very much for for the stage, John. Um, and Dr. Joy, pleasure to meet you. Thank you for, for spending time with us this, this afternoon, evening, or whatever time it may be. Um, so I, I do quite a bit of, I've uh, been in the States 21 years, uh, do quite a bit of business both in the U.S. here and in Africa. Um, how would you say the the healing um, about the stress, uh, post-traumatic stress that's been put on to the people here can be um, healed by connecting them back to their roots in Africa, perhaps. Oh, my goodness. That's like, I, I, if I could have even gave you that question to ask me, <laughs> it was, it's a perfect question. And um, I feel so strongly about it, uh, really, really strongly about it. I, I think that in the same way that people have been divorced from the truth here in this country, um, we, we are beginning to, and I'm really happy to report, at least in my work, in, in, in my international work, we are mending, uh, that, that broken connection that we have had, uh, with, with Africa in general. And very specifically, I know that in Ghana, there is just a, a real attempt to, to do that reach. I wanted to, and it, this is going to, I, part of what, the way I, I actually teach, I teach using a, a very strong African tradition. It's called symbolic imagery and rhythm. And um, that is the work of Dr. Edwin Nichols, whom you must have on as well. <laughs> Ed Nichols is, is amazing. He's my mentor. Um, and he basically studied and looked at the manner in which we connect. And, I, and I'm going to answer that question with a story. OK, and storytelling is a part of uh, that that epistemology, how we know a thing. So many people know or some people know that know me uh, that my first trip to Africa was in 1994 on the heels of the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. 
And uh, I, you know, I was uh, quite a bit younger than I am now. I'm very emotional. Uh, not that that ever changed. But I, it was the first time in my life I was going to be on African soil. And I remember the first thing that I experienced was normalcy around my Blackness. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that Africa is nirvana. Africa is struggling and Africa is suffering and we need each other. But when I got to Africa in 1994, I experienced a healing of normalcy. Normalcy around my Blackness because I was not odd. I was not, I did not have to be or act or feel some kind of way because everywhere I looked was Black. And it was a normalcy that first happened. Now, that's before anything that occurred. The next thing that happened to me when I was there was, uh, you know, I, you grow up, if, if, if we were together in a room, if all of us were together in a room right now, and I were to say, pick two people, because I don't, I don't know you, but I picked two, two brothers. And I say, look, can you all come into the front of the room and greet each other? Just greet. I don't know if you know each other or not, but greet how you would greet. Now, everybody on, I want you to imagine what you'd be seeing, right? You'd be seeing some sort of gesture, fist, hug, something going to happen to establish the relationship. Because the highest value in African and African-American culture is relationship. That's the highest value. And of course, that was what has been under assault for all these hundreds of years. But what happened to me when I got to Africa and I, I couldn't speak the languages. I always go to the villages. So I'm in the villages and I can't speak the language because we have a translator with us and they would be greeting us and we'd be greeting them. But when they would greet us, they would greet us with a common phrase, regardless of the tribal language, it would always translate into, I see you. I see you. Okay. So I was blown away by that. I was, I was always moved and touched. Um, and we were in, about about five different countries in the southern region, Botswana, Botswana, Namibia. We were we were all over, and we were there for six weeks. And I remember that that notion. I want you to remember what I just said. I see you, which, by the way, they took and basically planted in Avatar, because you know the blue people were black people. I'm just saying, and they actually lifted that tradition from Africa by saying, "I see you." Right now, I want you to remember this because, brother, I'm getting ready to answer your question, because when when I when I got there, I started to I was very emotional. So I I would just break down and cry. I would just I had never felt that that level of connection. I see you just that whole idea. And I want you to think about this, John, in terms of the marginalization and invisibility of blackness. Right. In the workplace. Right. That structure that always somehow you can't be you aren't seen. And then you have a perfect stranger saying, I see you. Okay, so I was moved and I cried, right? I would cry. And the thing is that when you cry in the southern region of Africa, I don't know about everywhere else. I've been to about seven countries in Africa. But, you know, I know in the southern region, when you cry, they just start singing. The people would circle around you and just sing until you stop crying. Nobody gives you a tissue, none of that. They just sing. And I was traveling with eight other African-American women. And the eight other African-American women, you know, it was it was they would they were so tired of me because there's a little problem that after they sing, they ask you to offer a few tunes as well. <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, we can't all sing. So the women, luckily, there are a few women in my crew that could sing, but they were getting tired of singing. So we're on our way to Lesotho. 
Now, I'm going to bring this all the way back home. I promise you. We're on our way to Lesotho. My sister is among the women. And they tell my sister, you need to go talk to Joy. So my sister is sitting next to me when I wake up. And she goes, Joy, you know, we're going to Lesotho today. I said, yeah, I know. She goes, we're not singing in Lesotho. So whatever you need to do, Joy, to get your little self together, you need to get yourself together because we're not singing in Lesotho. I'm like, wait a minute, you'll be talking to me crazy. So we get to Lesotho and we're in this huge auditorium, about six, 700 people in the auditorium. We're on the dais, on the stage, and you got people from every walk of life. You got people from universities, from the government, from villages, everybody. So I get up. I'm the first one to introduce myself. And then the, the translator is going to translate. So I got up. I said, hello, my name is Joy. I'm traveling with eight other African-American women. We're here to build a corridor with our African sisters so that we can learn from you. And perhaps you can learn from us. No tears. Everything's good. I sit there. He starts translating it. Right. But then he starts going on and on and on. And then the people start yelling something. Then they start clapping and stomping their feet. So. I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the guy. I go, what did you say? He said, well, I told him what you said. I said, I didn't say all that. I know I didn't say all that. He says, no, when I got to the part where I said you were African-American, some of the people here are from very remote villages and they thought all Americans were white. And then I had to explain to them that you were the descendants of the ones that had been stolen away. And they were saying to you, welcome home. Welcome home. And of course, everybody's singing. My sister's looking at me like, she did it again. How did she do it again? Everybody's on their feet. We're talking about six, 700 people on their feet and they are singing and I'm crying. Mm -hmm. And and in the middle of the room is this black woman. She's coming, making her way down. Matter of fact, I think she went to SC. It was either UCLA or SC. I'm almost certain it was SC. She graduated from SC, went back. She grabbed me by the hand. Everybody's standing and singing. And she says, did you think we would forget you? She says, I am from Lesotho. Lesotho is my home. If I leave Lesotho, Lesotho is still my home. If I leave Lesotho for 50 years, Lesotho is still my home. We mourned, Malcolm. And we mourned, Martin, with you. We are so very proud of you. You are African, 300 years from home. We just wondered when you were coming back. And it so changed me. I just need you to know that so changed me that when I got back home, I fell into a bit of a depression. So much so that the women on the trip started calling saying, is she gone outside yet? How's she doing? And the day that I went outside, here is why I went outside. I went outside because, you know, someone ran in and said, you know, there's a boy outside. He's going to beat up Nadine. That's my son. And he's going to pee on the car. These are absolute, these are true words. He's going to beat up Nadine, my son, and he's going to pee on the car. So I had to go outside, you know. So I go outside and who's standing there? A little group of 10-year-olds. Ain't nobody over 10-year-olds. Little, you know, standing in a little crowd. My son is in the little, in the little circle of them. So I look over to the little ringleader. He, he's a little stout, tough looking boy. I said, tell me something. Has my son done something I need to know about? He said, yeah, I want to know what, what, what he's staring at. I said, what? He said, I want to know what he's staring at, what he looking at. I said, wait a minute. You want to beat up my son because he was looking at you? He could have been looking at you because he thought you maybe want to play a little one-on-one. We got a little hoop out here. He could have been looking at you. Look down the street. There's a park. Maybe he thought you want to go to the park. 
He could have been looking at you because you thought you maybe want to play a little video game, right? So all the little kids are looking at me like, whoa, lady, because you know I got a little therapeutic on. So then what happens is I tell them the spiel about how we need to keep each other safe and the gunshots and all the things that we, we can't fight each other. And that's when it was born in me. Africa said, I see you. African-Americans said, what? What you looking at? What could have happened to a 10-year-old boy that he could not withstand a gaze? What did the gaze mean? Because you see, he didn't do that to white boys. He did it to black boys because what he saw in them is what he hated in himself. That's why we need Africa. We need to see our wholeness. Not our perfection, but our wholeness. And I believe that that is so necessary. The naturalness of blackness. And not that, again, Africa is not without its problems, but that ain't the one that they have. It's not with the blackness. Although if they keep importing our crazy and the bleaching creams and such, (laughs) they may be as crazy as us. But right now, brother, what I really believe and what it necessitates is that reach. The reach that says, I never forgot you and that I got your back. Sister Joy, (laughs) Jules, Mo, Mo, I I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, John. Thank you for the stage. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dr. Joy. I I would kindly ask that once you've asked your question and Dr. Joy's addressed it, please go ahead and jump back in the audience. We've got a lot of folks who want to give flowers and certainly uh, some questions that would like to be. Mo, thank you again. Um, Yeah, I'll simply... uh, I'll just go in my PTR order just to bring some structure to this. But interestingly enough, two things real quick, uh, Sister Joy, you brought up being seen. And funny enough, I had that question. That's, that's just the universe working again. I had that question about the concept of being seen and how foreign it is. So thank you for, 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 for tapping into that energy. Uh, and then secondly, uh, Avatar was not the first time James Cameron stole from Africa. <laughs> or Africans. Terminator was written by a sister. Right. Who also wrote The Matrix, just in case y'all didn't know. So just know when you're watching Terminator or uh, The Matrix, uh, that is a black woman, Sophia Stewart, the author. Anywho, uh, the front, uh, excuse me, the Forefront Express, please welcome to the stage. Yes, sir. Good, wonderful evening, everyone. And thank you, Dr. Joy DeGroo, for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, join us in this conversation. Oh, and John, what you mentioned was really poignant because think about the matrix. You have uh, the uh, key terms such as Zion being the place of deliverance and uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar being a ship. But that's another conversation. Um, (laughs) My question for you, Dr. Joy, is... Uh, what is, you mentioned earlier about the, uh, naivety of some of our people when it comes to relating to our children, the necessity of understanding the world that they live in. My question is, what is the, I have two actually, but I'll just ask the one for time's sake. What is the, uh, relationship between post-traumatic slave syndrome and the passive aggressive racism in this world? Not necessarily the overt that we can readily see, but the passive aggressive racism in the world today. What is the relationship between the two? Well, I think, you know, you, you, you hit the, the nail on it. So I, I think that this it's the passive aggressiveness. When we start looking at 
you know, one of the things that I started to try to, to do in, in my in my workshops, you know, there's a lot. I have, I have a class that I teach, a 10-week a graduate-level course. I'm teaching it right now. I actually had the first class on Tuesday. Um, and people from all over the world uh, are able to take the class. That's the reason why I actually control it, because I wanted it to be open to anybody and everyone. Um, and regardless of your educational background, I just wanted that to happen. And one of the one of the things that um, will happen to me inevitably, and it's a pretty diverse class, of course, the majority of people are black. Uh, and then, you know, even more, the majority is, are people of color. And there is all there are always some white people there that are, you know, that are really tracking and trying to make things happen and trying to figure this stuff out uh, and, and do the work. And one of the things that always gets asked of me is. What happened to white people? <laughs> you know, again, you know, you, you cannot go through uh, this 300 years of terrorism um, and just overt, covert uh, racism, uh, barbarism. Um, truly, you can't do that and be remain unscathed. And while that's not my discipline, that's not my area of study. It's something that I think we have to, to begin to appreciate. You know, people, uh, you often hear people talk about unconscious racism, right? Or we'll hear systemic racism. We're here, you know, people are not aware. In in other words, folks have normalized certain kinds of behaviors and attitudes. Black people have, white people have, everyone has on certain levels. And that shows up sometimes with this passive aggressive kind of stuff. Because I think, Think about this. Like I said, you, you, you create a way uh, to, to heal yourself. For, for example, nature will, if you, you throw toxins at nature, nature will adapt to the toxins. Toxins are no longer lethal to them, right? Everything in nature adapts. And so what happens to a, a people that have normalized aggression, oppression, um, uh, privilege, all of all of these, it becomes part of what people have to do to protect themselves. It's knee jerk, but it's extremely dangerous to those that they are uh, uh, basically inflicting with this behavior. Now, the behavior for them, they can be conscious of it, they can be um, unconscious of it, but I believe it is a part of their survival through. What I, you've got to recognize as pretty horrific behaviors that they witnessed as well. So, so let me give you an example of it. And again, I don't know any other way <laughs> to do this. Um, I, I remember uh, working with adolescent and adult um, male and female night workers, folks engaged in prostitution. For five years, I did that. Um, working with folks on the street, working with call girls and everybody in between, male and female. And I remember, um, you know, the program I was working with, the Council for Prostitution Alternatives is, was the name of it. Um, they were trying to get funds to help get get these people, get folks off the street, get them out of the life who were trying to escape the life. And trust me, I'm actually going to get back to that passive aggressive piece. And um, so we do this thing at a real a little ritzy uh, place where, you know, again, people are th- this is a nonprofit organization essentially begging, you know, begging for money. That's kind of you know, the game there, dog and pony show. So, you know, we introduce a number of the women and we talk about our success stories and all the things that you're supposed to do to get them to sign a check. And so I'm coming into the lobby 
And there are all of this, this whole, this is tables and, you know, they're, they're getting people's names and signing them in. And these are the women. Um, uh, these are all white women. They're extremely wealthy. They have diamonds so big that they can't stand up on their hand and their jewels everywhere. And they're just thrilled to death. And they see me. And then when I walk up and they said, we think it's just so wonderful, so wonderful what you're doing with these poor women. It is just really, you know, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm trying to bite my tongue, right? <laughs> because it's, it's not my organization. It's, you know, it's, it's the organization I'm doing work for, but, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to create a problem. They say, you know, and it's just so terrible that these women, um, you know, make these choices. <laughs> right? And, that, and that's what, that's what just, when it hit me, I said, choices? I said, you know, this is truly a supply and demand situation. I said, because it's really people like your husbands that keep this business going, (laughs) right? I said, because the average trick is a middle-aged white man married with with children, (laughs) right? I said, that's what a trick is. I said, so when we start looking at how this happened and where it started and choices, these choices started a long time ago in the dark. And we like we like to believe that it's some sort of a little victimless victimless crime, and you know, so I, these women are turning the, the color of ripened fruit at this point. Um, but I'm done. I'm done, and I'm done. So now let's fast forward this this notion, because you see what what people do, like just like the the little girl that's on the plantation that plays with the little enslaved girl on the plantation. It's her little friend. They play every day. And one day she finds she's been called to supper and all the women of the house are gathered together and they're pulling all the food together. And of course the enslaved African cooks and, and, and women in the house are putting, you know, bowls of food in front of everyone as they stand back silently and watch. And the little girl looks around and notices that her dad's not at the table. So she goes into the study and he's not in the study. And then she goes into the parlor and he's not in the parlor. And she sees a light coming from, well, the barn. And so she goes outside and she looks in the barn and she sees her father with her little eight-year-old friend. And he screams at her in some way and she runs back to the house. Now she's trembling and she's at the table, but she can't quite eat because you see all the ladies sitting around the table know where daddy is. And when daddy comes in, she rushes upstairs, crying, goes to her room and he goes up to her room and he he just strokes her her hair and he says to her, they're not like us, sweetie. And he wraps her in racism. He embraces her in racism and her choices to accept daddy or to dehumanize her little friend. Those are her choices. And so she chooses her survival. And this, again, this, these are all secrets because, see, nobody, everybody says pass the potatoes, but they know where daddy is. And so what I'm saying is that when we see this, the insidiousness of this passive aggressiveness, I'm not sure that this is not part of the epigenetic defense mechanisms to try to survive, uh, although now it's cracking at the seams, um, all of the ugly. But the thing that we have to most be aware of is that we cannot internalize that and we need to call it out when we see it. That's what we have to do. And we have to teach our children to do, to say, I'm, I'm curious about why you're doing this. We don't have to, you know, you don't have to take the earrings off, 
but we most certainly have to call <laughs> it out. And that's how we interrupt it. We cannot begin. In other, in other words, I'm not going to engage in the secret with you by pretending you didn't just do what you did or say what you said. That's what we have to do. Uh, but we need to know that just along with all the other adaptive, sick, twisted behaviors that came from that time, it shows up. And we're we're supposed to ignore it and pretend we didn't see it. I'm going to tell you the emperor's naked. That's just who I am. Mm. And see, Dr. Joy, what you just what you just touched on, that defense mechanism against insecurities being exposed. And in a corporate and corporate. Absolutely. In a corporate. Yeah. In, in a corporate environment. Woo! To call naked, that's a liability. To to point out their nudity, their insecurities, that's a liability. So I appreciate you bringing that that up. And it was a great question, uh, Forefront. You also mentioned earlier about appropriate adaptation. Would you liken it similar to um, during the Greco-Roman Empire when they forced their way into Northeast Africa, Jerusalem, Egypt, um, to that uh, Hellenization that our ancestors had to suffer from and the assimilation here in America. Would you say that's kind of similar? Absolutely. Pardon, pardon the interruption. I appreciate you, brother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep moving because we got a lot of folks. But thank you so much for that original question. Yes, I, I do. It is, you know, and again, mm-hmm. um, you, you, it's not always been pretty, you know, but we, we, you do what you have to do the issue has to has to be reached when we say when does it has did it lose its utility when did it not begin to work against us that's where my work comes in and say okay that was real i ain't mad at them but we can't do that anymore we got to stop those behaviors Mm -hmm. they had utility and they had a necessity and it was part of our agency during that time until it isn't and that's what we have to be careful of. You know, it's sometimes, you know, we, we begin to take on things uh, that our family say, say and do, you know, because Big Mama did it. If it was good enough for Big Mama, it's good enough for me. Not necessarily, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Coded behavior. Yeah. Yes. Just running the operating system on an outdated software, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Well D. put. Yes. Yes, indeed. D, thank you for coming to the stage. What's on your mind? Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And thank you so much, Dr. Joy. Oh, my goodness. I don't know where to really begin, but I want to send flowers to you and just thank you for your time in developing this masterpiece, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, I'm a professor here at um, Community College here in North Carolina, and I also teach seventh grade English, social studies, economics. And I have introduced my book to both uh, settings, both both class settings, and in both settings are very unique. Um, of course, children conceptualize your work totally different than uh, adults, and um, but both, you know, d- just like you said, the children have to be introduced to this work. It is necessary for real black love, uh, self love, and I love how you kind of lay that out in your book to really focus on what Black unity looks like on a global level. I really appreciate your, um, also your um, recognition of Black Indigenous Americans and how that unity is dangerous to white oppressors. Um, So I just want to send you your flowers. Thank you so much. Um, I I wanted to get into um, 
just basically, well, my first question, first of all, my I want to put myself first is about this class because I'm also in my master's program here at East Carolina University. And I would love to pick up that class and, and tag it along to my um to you know my program and, and what I'm what I'm gaining, I'm gaining my MAED in adult education. I would love to get more information on that one. My next question is like, what would you recommend? I I I've partnered your book with another book from Here to Equality, which we play. I actually play a book club um in activists taking action uh of your book. I and there's no audio of your book actually. I kind of have to convert it into from a PDF, edit it, convert it, and then play an audio through another app. But oh. I, it, no, it's okay. It's worth it. Your work is master as a masterpiece. I want to know, like, what would you recommend as we deconstruct your book uh, for the youth and for adults? Is very hard, especially being black in America, to uh, get through this and just get through the realities that you lay out so gracefully. And uh, how would you also recommend me getting through this in the work field? It's really interesting and unique. Uh, you know, administration will say. Oh, CRT. But when we get to the real truth of that theory, it becomes something that's um, unattractive. And I would like your advice on to just how to navigate through all of that. And also if that uh, class would be an option for uh, me. Um, OK, so you had about three or four questions. <laughs> I love the way she maximized her time. She maximized her time. She did maximize her time. Um First of all, you know, if you're talking about my course, the one I teach, I think you are. Um, you can just go to my website and there's there's two courses. One is the general course, which is a 10 week at after at the end of which I talk about my evidence based models that I use in community and in schools. Um, the other is my study guide. I don't know if you have the study guide because the study guide really, um, really helps you navigate the book. Uh, I really take the book, break it up and and give create questions, um, some for group kind of whole group questions, others where there's is more internal. It's one where anyone can use it, actually. Actually, anyone can use them because it, it really is beginning to question how you come to perceive yourself the way you do. Why, where it came from and whether it's something you are going to hold on to, whether you're going to tweak it or you're going to get rid of it altogether. Um, and this is, again, creating this this uh, not swallowing whole everything, saying, OK, for example, what do you call yourself? You call yourself black, African-American, colored, a Negro, a nigger, a nigger. What do you call yourself and why and who taught you that and who you think taught them? And is this something you want to pass on to another generation? So what what the study guide does is operationalize it. Right. It helps you see some of the questions we need to start asking ourselves about how we move through the world. And some of those things are really great and wonderful we should hold on to. And some of those things we should not. But it becomes part of the self-introspective um, um, experience that allows people to be able to navigate it in a way that they can now apply it. Part two, the other class that we teach is uh, implementation. So this is, this is when people have had the class the 10 weeks and are now wanting to implement uh, the strategies and the model in their community, in their environment, in their work. Uh, it starts with, of course, social problem, the problem analysis, uh, naming the problem, understanding it, and recognizing how to uh, basically get to the root cause. 
uh, I can actually share with you. And I would actually also put you in touch with if you go to my website, uh, go to my website and, and it will say contact Dr. Joy. And I can kind of give you some of the specifics of how we are navigating systems. It's not something that I could do here because it's lengthy, but um, talking about how do you apply what we've learned? And that's part of the course. People will ask me, Dr. Joy, can I have your model? I say, no, you cannot have my model because this is not one of those checklists of things that you think you can do. This is heart work, H-E-A-R-T, heart work. So it's not purely cerebral. While we, you know, I cross the T's and dot the I's, make certain that it's, it's something you can evaluate, surely count and measure, no problem there. However, you need a, something more. You need to know how to be with people that look like me and not harm them with all of your good intentions, one way or another. So I have to be certain. That's why they don't even get the model till the end of the 10 weeks, because you need to understand the true nature of the injury before you get the model. And then once you get the model, then we start looking at how are you going to use this model in your environment? And that's the five week class where we help people actually implement the model in their spaces. But it's not a quick thing. It's not. And and again, uh, you know, people often, especially white people who say, God, I really want to help. I really want to. Can I just can I get your model? No. What makes you think you can use my model? What makes you think you can? why, Why do you think you, you know? And so, again, that's me safeguarding, um, really, uh, the most vulnerable people of all. And those are the folks that you're working with, that I'm working with, that we don't want to further harm, uh, which means that we need to know the instruments and we know, need, need to know how to use them appropriately. Mm. So I would say reach out to me um, there and I can kind of give you a better sense of that. Hey, my friend, you have just listened to The Forefront Radio. Please leave your comment and input about the show, what you like about the show, as well as any general feedback on ways to improve. We need your help to acquire new equipment to implement studio quality video and audio to our friends. Contribute as little as $4.99. It's only worth a cup of coffee. Then we can produce documentaries, more episodes, and great info for the diaspora. Go to Cash App and enter A-P-H-I-E-L-L-E-V-I to donate to the Forefront Radio to cover our advertising costs and reach more people. Catch our next episode on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, anchor.fm slash the forefront. Always remember, the truth shall liberate the mind. Peace to the heirs of promise and the heritage of the scattered 12 tribes.